very shortly we're going to start working on a VR experience for the park here at Europa Park, which is incredibly exciting. The world beyond. Emotion is of tomorrow. Brought to you by Michelle and Mark. Hello and welcome back to my podcast, World Beyond the Emotioneers of Tomorrow. I'm Michael Mark, and today I'm joined in person here at Studio 78 at Europa Park by a truly special guest and dear friend of mine, Sir Richard Taylor. He's the CEO and co-founder of the world-famous Vita Workshop. Him and his team have provided the designs and physical effects for more than 80 films and numerous television shows, among many others, the hugely popular blockbusters Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit Triology, as well as The Chronicles of Narnia, King Kong Avatar, and many more. Richard has won five Academy Awards for special effects makeup, visual effects, and costume design. I'm beyond thrilled to welcome you here at Europa Park to my podcast, Richard Taylor. Thank you, Michael. It's lovely to be here. First, so that the audience has the chance to get to know you a bit more, I would like to ask you four questions that I would like for you to answer as shortly as possible, please. One. Which character of film or literature do you identify with the most? Squirrel Nutkin out of uh, the the writings of Beatrix Potter. She describes him as being bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and I wake up every morning in that manner. Two. You've won so many amazing awards. Where do you keep them? They're all at work. They're in the cabinet where all our team can pick them up, look at them, uh, share them. We've taken them out to the world to share with other people. And it's a lovely exclamation mark for an effort well done by our team. Three. You live in the gorgeous country of New Zealand. Where do you go to have a nice vacation? Well, we head over the hill from our city. Uh, it's one hour's drive and we're in the countryside, rolling beautiful countryside. And that's the best place for me to go on vacation because uh, it's, uh, it's a wonderland of our own creation. Four. Which superpower would you most like to have? The superpower of more time per day. I, uh, I can never have en enough hours to do what I aspire to do every day. Lovely, thank you so much. To get the talk going, I would like to challenge you with a provocative question, if you will indulge me. Should we still invest in complex prosthetics, time-consuming makeup, expensive props and real physics effects on set when CGI is so effective and it's only getting better and better? Absolutely, we should continue to do so. CGI takes the creative process of filmmaking to some degree out of the hand of the visionary director and puts it into the hands of, in some cases, thousands of others, distancing the director from the final result. Now, that director may have some level of art directorial and directorial control over the process once the green screen shot has been achieved, where the actor's acting against a tennis ball on the end of a stick. But there is a disconnect in that process. Directors love to be shooting things in the physical space, in the moment, in real time, with uh, flesh and blood actors. 
and then enhancing them through the form of prosthetic effects. It's ultimately not a competition, it's the complementary use of both visual effects and physical effects that I think will keep movies alive and uh, continuing to be special for us as audiences. So I don't think we will see a day anytime soon where we will diminish the use of physical actors wearing costumes, props, prosthetics to bring the best of stories and the best of characters to life. There's no question with the emerging technologies of AI, the ability to capture libraries of voice performance, uh, motion capture an actor, store those up to be used in an animated film further down the track, that we're going to be able to see perfect replication of human life. Arguably, uh, we saw the moment that Nate Terry and Jake kissed an avatar. Our hearts soared. We felt the same connection to their romantic, emotional moment as we did for any lead actor and actress at the moment they kissed. And this was just pixels. This was just a digital fabrication in a totally non-physical world. But the accomplishments of the digital effects technicians allowed us to live in that moment as if we were living in a physical point in a film with equal sense of emotional connection. But I can see that there is still a desire and still a strong drive to utilize the incredible benefits that physical effects brings. And and Michael, you started the question by saying, why would we use the expensive use of prosthetic and et cetera? We're working on a number of films. We've just done two low budget horror movies where our digital effects were completely not an option because of the cost of using visual effects to achieve the results. Both required the actors to interact with the creature where the creature is plausibly causing pressure and powerful movements against the actor's body, to try and do that digitally still today is incredibly challenging. So simply putting a person in a suit and getting it all in camera, getting it all in the moment, still makes sense. And I think that will be for a while to come. And there is a swing back towards practical effects in the last three years we've been working on some of the largest licenses in the world uh, in film where the director has opted to use almost entirely practical effects puppetry prosthetics suit characters to achieve what they want to achieve in the movie it's interesting to uh, hear because as you know we come back from a family tradition being eight generations and let me just um, reflect a little bit because you been coming over from New Zealand, so we were maximizing our time together. And there was a, a late night last night, and we were talking about the center of, of detail and the center of uh, all what we'll literally do, and you and your company and uh, here at Europa Park. And you were talking about the center of love. And I think that fits uh, into uh, my provocative question. So if you maybe for our listeners could just uh, retell the little thing we had about love and the center of creating things. Yeah, for the listeners, I think if you're listening to this podcast, it's because you followed Michael, his father, uh, the Europa Park story. And so I don't think that you'll find this corny or twee or a little bit sappy, I think you'll get this. But what I said to Michael last night, and it's a little used 
word these days. People are anxious or embarrassed or steer clear of using the word love. But love must be at the heart of the creative process. Without love at the heart, the audience can see it. Somehow the world in which you're inviting them into, whether that be film, TV, location-based experiences, or a theme park, in some way feels two-dimensional and superficial. I feel very strongly that it is beholden on people like Michael and his family and people like ourselves, practitioners of the creative process, where we are inviting people into our worlds to approach every task with a sense of unabashed enthusiasm and unfiltered love. And in turn, the audience are aware of it, and even if they wouldn't label it, and even if they chose to label it, may not speak it out loud, but I genuinely believe that when people come to Europa Park, and in a certain degree when people watch the films that we're fortunate to work on, they can sense the love of conviction to the craft, to the art, to the storytelling, to the connection that exudes through every pore of every person within the park, every crack in the pavement, every piece of theming in the experience. And uh, that, to me, is the reason to celebrate in what we do. Because to do anything less is to be wasting one's time, and you might as well just not get up in the morning. So uh, let's keep love at the very centre of everything that we do. I couldn't have said it any better. For the listeners of the podcast, I would love to. I mean, we know each other for a couple of years, but I would try to give them a little glimpse of the character Richard Taylor, which become a beloved friend um, of myself and the Mac family. I had the honor to meet your family with Tanya and the kids. But um, I was so fascinated and thrilled by your story. I know we could talk over your story for hours and hours, but if you would sum up your life, how you started mm. all of that out of New Zealand to the point where you are today. So if you could give us a five-minute yep. summary of yeah. your life, that would be amazing. I had the good fortune of meeting, firstly, Michael at IAPA with his team, and he kindly invited my wife, Tanya, who's also my business partner, and our two children, Sam and Amelia, to travel to Europe and visit his park. And uh, on arriving, Michael's wife, Miriam, hosted us, and then Michael joined us. And we've often said that that five days that we spent with the Mac family and at the Europa Park is probably the five happiest days of our life as a family because normally Tanya and I are so busy that it doesn't really give us a chance to have this sort of experience. Where it all started, um, I was always a kid that loved to make things. I grew up in the countryside. I come from a 14-family community called Tehihi, south of Auckland in New Zealand. And I used to sculpt mud out of the creek on the back of the farm. That's how I discovered the love of sculpting. We moved to Wellington together. My wife got a job in a hotel doing duty managing. And I used to go and sculpt margarine sculptures for the buffet of the restaurant in swaps for meals. And uh, that started our creative career. Five years in, Peter Jackson saw our work on television. Uh, Tanya and I have been together since we were 13, so this is our 45th year together. We've been working intensely together running a company for 35 years. 
um, we teamed up to work on all of Peter's uh, films all the way. We didn't work on his first movie, Bad Taste, but Meet the Feebles, Brain Dead, Heavenly Creatures, uh, The Frighteners, onto the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the Hobbit trilogy, except King Kong, etc., etc. But in between all of that, we were also developing our Weta workshop. Today, we're six different businesses. We do digital gaming. We make merchandising. We publish books. We've got a retail experience in, in two cities. We run a tourism offering. We do location-based experiences we have a design studio we manufacture and we've manufactured on over 120 films and tv series and uh, we run our own location-based experiences and most recently we've developed a new division called new technologies division where we're working on metaverse experiences for major clients around the world it sounds like uh, we're empire builders it's actually opportunity builders when you have a population of young people aspiring to enter the creative process, we have just really tried to stay up to speed with the new and emerging technologies and creative industries and continue to offer opportunity to the kids that come through our doors. And uh, turn today, we have 350 people working across six different areas of our business and it's joyful, fun, and really, really hard. <laughs> so I can imagine even the traveling. I mean, you've been to Annecy, you've been traveling all Europe together with your friend, Tanya, and listening to the uh, long history you have with your family and your wife, Tanya, I feel even more honored that uh, you've been, I think, the first uh, birthday you missed of your wife uh, traveling yeah. through Europe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is, In 45 years, this is the first birthday I've ever missed of my wife. Uh, I travel a lot uh, pre-COVID. I was doing a hundred flights a year. That's in the sky every three and a half days, chasing work, chasing clients, um, finding new opportunities, looking for new things to do, working on projects. I've worked in China now for the last 25 years and been flying up to China one week in every four, doing big location-based experiences up in China. And that keeps you away from home. But I've always managed to be home for my wife's birthday and this time because of the film festival in Annecy where we're presenting uh, Yellow Dove, uh, a slice of Roni Avovitz's amazing Our Blue World. I wasn't home to do it, but she said at the age we are today, she wasn't too fussed. And I think she knows that you um, are staying with us at Europa Park, so she knows the place and she knows that you're in good hands here in Roost. So I'm doing this podcast because... Um, as you know, we're eighth-generation family um, coming from the handcrafted uh, world of building roller coaster, manufacturers of themed uh, environments, and of course, like you said, you always want to keep up with technology. You want to see what's out there, and um, you're one of the most inspiring and lovely person I met in my life because you're also looking ahead. You are a forefather of creativity. And what strikes me the most is that actually you are, as I looked it up correctly, one of the very few and if not the only one outsider not being American winning so much Oscar, which is a parallel to our world being a non-American theme park, uh, which has won eight times in a row the best theme park in the world. So we have a similar story, so to say, even though if I haven't achieved what you have achieved, but it's uh, great to listen to you, learn from you. And um, what I want to touch on, what do you think the world of tomorrow, what, what, what is going to change in your field of expertise 
Well, how do you feel about the streaming platforms of consumption of movies? How do you see the industry as such at the moment? Uh, the industry is in a incredible state of flux. It is changing. My wife, Tanya, owns a cinema. She built it up from a uh, historical old cinema and she wanted to keep a view. It's very similar to the cinema just behind the wall of the room that we're in. They, they could be almost the same place. She's built this beautiful Art Deco cinema called the Roxy in Miramar and Wellington. And it was a desire to keep projected image within an auditorium enjoyed by a collective of people, right? That beautiful experience you have of going to the movies. And of course, today with large flat screen TVs and the comfort of watching uh, streaming networks at home, that experience is growing less and less. And then you build into that this compunction for people to consume their entertainment in almost blipvert lengths, three second, five second bites of information and entertainment. That is an interesting shift um, from our desire to consume deep, meaningful, epic entertainment in the form of cinema. And it will be very interesting to see where this goes, whether there will always be the traditionalists that want to hang on to the cinema experience. But, you know, when you think about just even the consumption of information off the internet in the form of a cell phone, someone described it the other day where once it was a T-shape where you might skim across the top of the T looking for things of interest. And when you found them, you would dive down the vertical pillar of the T and go very, very deep. But today, a great deal of the people consuming media are only skimming along the top of the T. So what does that mean for people like ourselves that desire to make deep, meaningful, thoughtfully curated impactful entertainment and how do we keep that relevant and how do we keep it purposeful of course to some degree you can't be a traditionalist you can't just hang on to what you used to enjoy yesterday because no one wants to watch tomorrow what they saw yesterday it's a reality that we have new generations of kids who have no desire to watch appointment viewing in our schedule blocks. They want to see things in their moment, in their time. Even more than that, they want to be the curators of their own entertainment. They want to be fully immersed in it. They don't want to be passive viewers. So the potential of starting to create entertainment where rather than creating film, you're creating world building where a audience member steps out of the chair and steps beyond the proscenium arch. They become a participant in the ecology of the world of the piece of entertainment. They can even influence it. In fact, the entertainment starts to be entirely directed and fabricated to their own appetite, just in the same manner that the ads on YouTube are altered relative to your consumption. There will be a time very, very soon where the AI algorithms will be able to moderate entertainment specifically for your own choice and flavor. What does that mean for storytellers? What does it mean for a linear three-act structure? What does it mean for 
the way that literature has been written traditionally and consistently over, in some cases, thousands of years. It's an ever-accelerating process of new discoveries and new ideas and new um, interests that we have to try and stay very dynamic, very uh, nimble, and uh, project further into the future to try and make sure that we stay very relevant if we want to remain part of this incredible career that uh, we love to enjoy. I just may quickly add something, Michael. I'm just looking out the window. The audience can't see what I'm looking at, but I'm looking out into the streets of Paris in Europa Park in Germany, and there are throngs of people outside enjoying this environment. And this is a very backstreet part of the uh, theme park, but there's probably 40 or 50 people just within my eye line right now. Some of them are peeking through the windows. People are social animals. People want to associate with others. The aspiration of computing was never to create unsocial networks. The aspiration is to engender social networks, social computing, the ability to capture exactly what we're witnessing out the window, where total strangers are coming together either in a theme park or a cinema, and through the energy that's garnered from the collective enjoyment or horror or empathy or anger of watching a piece of screen entertainment, you have the collective uh, spirit of the human gaining something that you can't have if you isolate yourself off into a VR cell phone streaming experience sitting on your couch alone. And that's why I would love to think that as a human race, we will continue to celebrate in the collective spirit of entertainment and keep going to the cinema and keep coming to theme parks and enjoying what the human um, connection can mean in our forms of entertainment. Speaking about, um, and I have so many more questions on my paper, but it would be very interested, of course, we um, wouldn't be sitting here without talking about Dr. Grobot, Dr. Chi, and um, I'm happy to announce that um, um, Dr. Chi will be available soon on roller coasters around the world. And I experienced it, I'm one of the very few lucky ones who did experience it on uh, magically, but um, maybe you could tell all our listeners what is coming next on uh, the VR headset with Dr. Chi? Yeah, thank you, Michael. I appreciate you asking me the question because Dr. Grawbortz, which is the oddest title, is very, very fond to my heart. My wife and I, early in our career, started a thing we call Star Dog, right? Star Dog, named after our dog, and because uh, we always thought she was the star in our lives. And this was identifying young people within our workshop that had no outlet for their own creative ideas outside of the work that they were doing with us. And Stardog has launched multiple IPs. It's given young artists the opportunity to become successful fine artists in their own career. It's generated a huge amount of creative work, sculpture, painting, writing, etc. And the most, arguably the most significant of those is an IP, a piece of intellectual property, 
called The World of Dr. Grawbots. And how that came about, we have this extraordinarily talented person that works with us, a very, very dear friend of mine called Greg Broadmore. Uh, Greg doesn't have any specific university training. He's just miraculously talented and uh, creativity just pours out of his fingers. We were working on King Kong. He designed a lot of the dinosaurs for Peter Jackson's King Kong. And then we rolled on to District 9. And if people know Neil Blomkamp's District 9, they will know uh, Greg's work in the form of the alien culture and a lot of the graphics and the guns and the spaceships, of which many people in our workshop also worked on. But Greg did um, some proportion of it. And I said to Greg, do you have any of your own worlds in your mind? And he said, well, no, not really. But if you gave me a week, maybe I could think of one. A week later, he came back to me. He goes, oh, I've come up with one, and it's called The World of Dr. Grawbort's, <laughs> which uh, said, fantastic. Why don't you tell me about it? Dr. Grawbort is a nefarious industrialist, not too dissimilar to the Halliburton of the turn of the century. It's set in a alternative Edwardian universe where there is a arms race between America and the UK and Dr. Grawbortz will make anything from children's toys to soap powder and military hardware, which he sells to either side because war makes good business. And uh, in the middle of this meta story is a character called Lord Coxswain. He's a misogynistic, stiff upper lip, aristocratic buffoon. And he tools around the galaxy in his uh, spaceship, hunting wild animals for his drawing room wall and uh, unintentionally starting intergalactic wars. And uh, so it's a satirical slice of life that pokes fun at many of the social uh, norms of the era that today are so wrong and so laughable. But it's a rich, diverse, amazing ecosystem of, of steam-powered spaceships and crystal-powered ray guns and wild and wonderful creatures and heroes and villains. And Thankfully for us, um, Michael was introduced to the world of Dr. Grawbots and uh, very shortly we're going to start working on a VR experience uh, for the park here at Europa Park, which Greg, myself and my wife Tanya are incredibly excited about. We have developed Dr. Grawbots with the intention of hopefully one day making a feature film, but over the years, we've sold high-end collectibles. We've published multiple books in multiple languages. We have an art collection of over 350 paintings that Greg has done of the world, over 200 other artifacts, including incredible busts of creatures, of insects, of uh, the explorations of uh, Coxswain, of the building of the factories of Dr. Grawbortz. We've exhibited the exhibition uh, of Dr. Grawbortz in various parts of the world. It went back to China four times, last time being the most significant art exhibition ever to go to China. But all of that was a pre-runner to 
the work that we did through Magic Leap on the Mixed Reality platform, creating the first ever Mixed Reality game called Dr. G Invaders. And uh, the one of the world's leading futurists, uh, Ted Shilovit, describes Dr. G Invaders as the hyperrail of uh, digital games. It's so cutting edge and so unique is it. And uh, sadly, due to COVID and various other reasons, we weren't able to continue on with Dr. G Invaders, but it was an incredibly successful proof of the unique new form of mixed reality-based immersive gaming. And uh, we're having another opportunity through the VR experience that we're doing right here with you, Michael, and your team at Europa Park, which is incredibly exciting. So thank you very much, Richard, for coming again over to Europa Park, speaking to me about your life and about everything you created, which is tremendously interesting and just an amazing life story. So if you want to know more about Richard and his life and the world beyond the emotion news of tomorrow and how the future is going to be, listen to the second episode together with Richard next week. Michelle Mark presents The World Beyond. Emotion News of Tomorrow. A Mac One Production.